This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Radiotherapy. First, thanks to our fishy friends at Radio Marinara for another fascinating hour of radio. And I'm delighted to have your company here on 3RRR between now and 11 o'clock. With me in the studio, wearing huge post-election smiles, I'm delighted to have our resident expert in all matters general practice, Miss Medic. Welcome back. Good morning. Good to have you on the show. Uh, And sitting next to her, um, we have a special guest. Um, So we'll be talking to Jill later in the show. Jill Giese is a psychologist who's written a fascinating book about uh, the mental asylums here in Victoria. Jill, welcome to the show. Good morning. And thanks very much for coming in on this somewhat blustery Sunday morning. Um, and lurking in the corner in her favourite place we have, with a grin that's not only caused by the election results, but I think by the fact that maybe the third year exams finished recently, we have our resident medical student. That is 100% correct. And, and I will be staying in the corner, enjoying a bit of sleep and rest until the semester starts again next year. Yes, Miss Diagnose, it's lovely to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. So we've got plenty of stuff happening. But before we do that, we're going to do a little bit of news catch up. Doctor, doctor. What's been happening in the news today? Hmm. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what's been happening in the news today. There was an election yesterday, in case anyone didn't notice. And I'm, I'm particularly excited about this because um, put my colours to the mask, uh, my involvement in the voluntary assisted dying movement. We were very concerned because Matthew Guy's mob had f- uh, failed to rule out the possibility they would try and repeal the legislation. So we'd been campaigning like crazy mm. uh, to keep the VAD legislation happening. And now we don't have to do anything else because Labour have got back in, which is very exciting from our point of view. Absolutely. It was a big day yesterday. And um, if you were, there were lots of polling booths being rained out across Melbourne and a very drizzly, gloomy day. It was actually the school fair for my my children's schools, so but we still managed to have a good turnout. So rather damp democracy. Oh sausages. my goodness! Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the other thing, of course, that changed um, is that Matthew Guy had said that he would close the safe, safe injecting room. Uh, misdiagnosis. I think we're going to talk about that later in the show, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was one of Matthew Guy's uh, key election promises was to close the safe injecting rooms, sort of, you know, forthwith from winning the election, and uh, he didn't. So hopefully they'll be staying open. So the other thing that was in the news that caught my eye, and and this is partly because it's something I've been quite interested in for a long time, there was a long article by journalist Mark Whitaker in um, in The Age on Saturday talking about sunshine and vitamin D. Now, people are probably familiar with vitamin D being something that was really all over the news. Miss Medic, did you have people coming to you wanting vitamin D testing all the time? All the time. All the time. And it was a really hot sort of topic and a few years ago when we were testing willy-nilly uh, well the mbs so the um the medicare benefits scheme has really clamped down so you actually can't test as readily which is somewhat to the surprise of some of the patients now and sometimes this is one of the challenges in medicine which i'm sure you're aware of dr nick that something becomes hot we start talking about it a lot 
people jump on board and then the government says, well, but we're not going to fund that all the time and then we have to backtrack where we're at, which has been one of the challenges. But what, what's the latest with vitamin D? So th- this is something that's been of interest to me for a long time because we've been talking about this vitamin D, we've been throwing supplements at people left, right and centre and the research, as I understood, showed that really giving tablet or capsule supplements of vitamin D didn't seem to be terribly effective. Now, to backtrack a little bit, we get 95% of our vitamin D in nature comes from the sunshine on our skin. We only get a small amount from diet. So it's actually physiologically not what we're meant to do, which is to take it in a tablet form. Turns out that it's quite possible that the whole vitamin D story is a bit of a furphy, that the vitamin D we create by the sun is what we call a proxy marker. The vitamin D doesn't really matter. What is healthy for us is actually a bit of sunshine on the skin. As an example, we know that multiple sclerosis is much more common in people who live a long way from the equator. So people who don't get much sun have a much higher rate of multiple sclerosis. As they move nearer the equator, the rates reduce. And it's thought, it used to be thought that maybe that was to do with vitamin D. Vitamin D supplementation didn't stop people getting MS, but giving them a bit of sunshine does. Mm. And it may be that sunshine has an effect on how our immune system works that's actually good for us. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. And um, and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what is the optimal vitamin D level? And we're, we're really unsure, really, about what that is. There's also been some research implicating vitamin D levels and atopy and eczema. So you have to wonder whether it's not the, you know, the vitamin D, but some sunlight exposure, which we know UV is light is good for skin um, in terms of uh, inflammatory conditions like eczema and dermatitis. Um, But obviously the difficulty we have is the whole skin cancer slip slop slap message that um, that really can confuse people because we're we're saying you know arms and legs out for a you know decent duration of time in order to get optimum vitamin d levels from the sun um and people obviously can you know that can be really hard when we're thinking about you know sunlight exposure and the risk of skin cancer and to me it's that classic pendulum thing we used to lie in the sun and bake and think it was fantastic and now all of a sudden sunlight is appalling and it causes nothing but cancer and what i hope is the pendulum swinging slightly back more to the moderate middle which is not saying that we should be lying there getting roasted in the midday sun but that a certain amount of ultraviolet on our skin which after all literally it does feel so good absolutely so i have (laughs) definitely started if we are out at the park and it's four o'clock in the afternoon i'm not putting sunscreen on my children at that time i'm letting them get you know arms and legs out and copying some sun in order to get their vitamin d level up so, so what is the actual advice here? You're talking just popping the baby out in the garden and leaving them for 10 to 15 minutes. What, what, what are we actually talking? It seems like there are some conflicting messages about how much vitamin D or how much sunshine we should be getting. Yeah, I'm not suggesting we should roast our babies to walnut complexion. I, I don't think that's the advice anyone would give. But turn it around the other way. I was with a friend the other day and we came out of the cafe and it was 15 degrees in Melbourne. Uh, it was 11 o'clock in the morning. It was cloudy. It was raining. She's a freckly redhead and we walked out of the cafe and she started putting sunscreen on and i think that's the kind of extreme that we've tended to go to that's probably unnecessary i think the evidence is quite strong that a certain amount of ultraviolet light on skin within moderation in in the quantity what we don't want to do is get burnt we know that sunburn is a high risk for skin cancer but it is entirely probable that too little sunlight 
without any exposure to ultraviolet is actually quite high risk for other diseases. You've mentioned some of those things like asthma, multiple sclerosis, there may be other autoimmune diseases, more common in people who are underexposed to ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in terms of timing, it's hard to actually quantify what is exactly right. But I think it's avoiding probably um, exposure during the, you know, in the middle of summer in those midday hours, so probably between 11 and 3, high-risk times for sunburn. Um, but outside of that time, if you had arms and legs exposed for around half an hour to an hour, you would probably be getting adequate um, vitamin D levels and not burning. But obviously it does depend a bit on skin type. If you are very pale from that sort of real Anglo background with red red hair, then you're at more high risk. But if you've got some Mediterranean background, more olive skin, meaning that your actual ability to absorb vitamin D is probably a bit less, the dark your skin is the more you can tolerate a bit more sun so you probably could have a little bit longer out in the sun so it sounds like it's about being sensible and knowing your skin type absolutely but yes avoiding burns but you know outside that do expose your skin to some uv light and as a simple example back in the uh, 40s and 50s when we didn't have any treatment for tuberculosis with drugs that was effective my father in the uk got tuberculosis and was admitted to a sanatorium where one of the treatments was in the afternoon the patients were wheeled onto the balcony and left in the afternoon sunshine and that was thought to be curative for their tuberculosis and do you know what the research says they were right. You sure it wasn't just the nurses having a smoking break out the back? <laughs> Possibly the patients as well. <laughs> but there's evidence that sunshine was curative for tuberculosis. So there we go. Maybe the old things are coming back around as they tend to do. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. And today we have our special guest, Jill Giese. Um And Jill's a clinical psychologist, and she's written this fascinating book called The Maddest Place on Earth. Uh, and it's about the lunatic asylums, as they were called back in the day. And um, Jill, fantastic job, because you've also won the Victorian Premier's History Award for this book. Congratulations. Right. Thank you. Tell me what started this. Where did this book come from? Well, it uh, the story found me, really. I, I live... Um, nearby uh, an old relic of Melbourne's first lunatic asylum. It's a big old bluestone pillar that stands in the Yarra Bend parklands hidden amongst the eucalypts. And uh, I, I knew it was there, but one day I thought, uh, you know, I've worked, toiled in, in Victoria's mental health system for so many years and I've never really known about the history. And so I started to just take a look and I, I was just hooked as soon as I got began Um, One of the things that really sort of drew me in was this um, extraordinary account of the asylums as they were 140 years ago, written by an eyewitness, and it wasn't a patient, it was a a journalist who was working undercover and spent a month in the asylums, locked up with the patients, and when he came out... He um, wrote up the, his compassionate and, and um, engaging observations in Melbourne's main newspaper, the Argus. And it caused an absolute sensation. There was five... It was over a series of five Saturdays. And he, he was only known as the Vagabond. But he, he actually wrote up... And they're very amusing sketches, but they also tell you exactly what happened all, all through the day. And uh, so you really get a sense 
of of it just came roaring back to life. So that that really hooked me in. And then the more I I looked into the story, there were just so many fascinating things about it. I mean, the the reason my book's called The Maddest Place on Earth is because Victoria was officially declared to be the maddest place in the world at a royal commission in the 1880s because we had the highest rate of insanity. And has nothing changed? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was one prominent um, citizen who predicted around about that time that at the present rate of increase in insanity that by 2050, Victoria's population would be entirely comprised of lunatics. So <laughs> maybe we're on track, I don't know. <laughs> so, so why is this? Why, why was Victoria the maddest place on earth? Well, I mean, they st- it, the, the way they measured that was, was the number of so-called lunatics locked up in the asylums. And it was multiply determined. I mean, there were some social factors. The, the gold rush had brought a lot of excitable people to Victoria and a lot of people just from from Britain uh, where, where the, it was just boiling over with hungry citizens who wanted uh, suddenly they thought here's an opportunity to um, strike it rich and and so they they just flocked to to Victoria because this was considered this the, the great southern El Dorado and um, obviously a lot of people did strike it rich but there was very very many losers with these extravagant expectations that they'd leave all their troubles behind and and lo and behold they'd have instant wealth and happiness and and so there was a lot of a lot of broken psyches along the way and so that started to swell the asylums but so, so take us back what's the history of asylum where did this idea come from that we would build huge hospitals and lock up mad people? Well, actually, it, it, it's, it started in, in the old country, in, in England, and uh, there, was, there was major reforms in the way people with insanity were managed in the 1800s. Before that, they'd been chained in dungeons and bled and blistered as routine medical treatments and, um, you know, goaded and then paraded for the amusement of visitors. And they were very, very dark centuries that had occurred. Now we just call that politics. <laughs> anyway, so so there was a there was a, a, a Quaker from York called William Chuke who who um, saw one of his brethren locked up in the asylum, and um, after a month, this this young woman who was actually suffering from melancholia, um, she perished in the asylum, and um, and so he just he thought to himself that um, there must be a better way for treating insanity. And as a Quaker, he believed that um, that you know the mind may be lost to, to madness, but not the human heart. And so he decided to set up his own asylum, speaking to the hearts of um, patients by treating them with dignity, putting them in an uplifting environment, and um, giving them something meaningful to do under a strict routine. And and lo and behold, he got really impressive results. When and, and where was that built? It was it was called the York Retreat. It was in it was in um, uh, northern England. And that was the first of the sort of proper asylums. Well, it? that was the first of these enlightened asylums, and it was. Firstly, just for Quakers, but it, uh, there was a number of other things that were happening around about the time. Not, none at least was that King George went mad, so they, everyone was thinking, we need to do better than this. Um, so, uh, so then, you know, the, the, the medicos had had a terrible, terrible blow to their reputation with the old treatments. 
And the enlightened amongst them saw the opportunity for better treatment of the insane as well as restoring their reputation. So they they absolutely embraced this Quaker treatment with evangelical zeal and they they wrote tomes about how to, to do this and sort of embellished it, if you like, and they started building these grand uh, asylums with landscape gardens and built on hills with uplifting views for patients. They gave them nourishing and plentiful food and um, strict routines and something meaningful to do all day long in the and so they were all employed doing jobs around the asylum and um, this wave of of lunacy reform swept through Britain and Europe and America and this is where we the, you ended up with all these grand asylums and of course as a colony of um, of Britain you know the same thing happened in Australia so so we we started off with the very old uh, asylum at Yarra Bend which was built in the frontier days but then we we built the grand Q asylum that still dominates the landscape it's morphed into an ex- exclusive residential estate nowadays where you need a swipe card to get in you <laughs> didn't used to be able to get out I'm serious it's, it's, the, 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 it's, it's all still intact but it's fantastic that, that it has been preserved and that people pay good money to, to, to live there because it's actually in, in, it's been beautifully preserved you, you, you can only get in on an open day but it, it really is just how it would have been um, on the outside. I just want to point out to the grammatical pedants who are listening we made an executive decision to refer to asylums plural rather than the grammatically correct asylum because it just sounds pretentious on a Sunday morning. So. <laughs> As opposed to pointing it out which doesn't sound pretentious. No. No. So we just, we'll ward off all those thousands of phone calls criticising us. Right, right. So, George, uh, an important question was, was the concept of asylum back then one of healing and cure or was it just containment and holding? Well this is part of what really I mean, I'd, I'd heard about this treatment and it was actually called moral treatment and the word moral in those days was closer to the word morale, uh, meaning psychological well-being. And, and that was the focus of treatment and it was recovery-oriented. It was all so about... So did people get out? They did. And in 1876, they, they had a cure rate, cure rate of um, 54%. Wow, which that's, was that's extraordinary. better than 2018. And, 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 and England was languishing on 30%. So, um, uh, and, and in my book, I, I decided, I, I just thought this was such a fantastic story with really a lot of contemporary relevance. If you, if you think about providing asylum for people when they're, when they're ravaged by you know, mental turmoil and providing a place of recovery and respite so that they, and bolstering their, their, their strengths against mental affliction and giving them time to sort of improve. So um, I thought, I've got to write this story. And, um, and so I, I found this, this character, this underground uh, undercover journalist who, who really was the foil that you need in, in some of the darker aspects of this and a patient who'd been, um, who'd been banished from, from his homeland in England we actually had this term called imported insanity in the colony, this was another thing that added to the, um, the huge number of, of so called lunatics but they actually, uh, people in England um, because it was all happening on the other side of the world in this new colony, they actually put people on a boat, gave them 50 pounds and sent them to the other side of the world to fend for themselves. And, of course, you know, with no support and vulnerable psyches, it wasn't long before they ended in, up in the asylum. And they even, they even coined, coined a phrase for it, the imported insanity, because it was so common. And the government had to change the law 
um, or bring in a law because there were all these unwanted boat people, so to speak. <laughs> so they actually made the the ship's captains responsible for anybody who was deemed to be a lunatic on arrival. So you can just imagine the old salts on the London docks, you know, screening their passengers for lunacy before they got on the boat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, just wondering, so a cure in those days, did that mean discharged from the yes. asylum? Yes, yeah. indeed. So the 54% recovery rate was the, the rate of people... Leaving. Leaving. Yeah. And... Uh, and, and you know, obviously, mental illness is an episodic thing, and we have to remember in those days there was no drugs that we the powerful psychiatric drugs that we have these days, and a very very many of the ones who who were who were so called cured, um, you know, didn't last too long because they certainly they hadn't thought about what to do beyond the time in the asylum. They were they were given there was no discharge planning. People were given because they all had to wear asylum clothes. And they were given um, a suit, uh, you know, and a hat, and um, and sort of waved goodbye at the at the gate, and and that was it, really. And they got their possessions back. Um, but yeah, it's and look, it it the theory was fantastic to give people all of those things that promote recovery, but it was it was ambushed, you'd have to say, by the sheer number of patients. The the asylums were just overflowing. So I was wondering, Jill, just in the light of the recent election, uh, one of the key promises by our new Premier is a Royal Commission into Mental Health, Mm. which has been promised within the first 100 days um, of office. And, I mean, the idea behind this Royal Commission is that our current mental health uh, system in Victoria is is broken and needs to be rebuilt and so started again. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Do, do you think it's it's completely broken and we need a whole commission? I mean, they say this is the first Royal Commission into Mental Health, but we were just talking about this earlier. Yeah. Well, in fact, such was the concern about the mental health crisis in Victoria in the colonial days that they had no less than 11 formal government inquiries, two of which were Royal commissions in the space of about 30 years so there was there was great concern and um, what what's striking when you read this history is to to just see the parallels and the things that just keep coming around and I'm really looking forward to um, talking to the to the royal commissioners, if I if I might, seeing seeing I won the premier's history award, I can't see why I can't muscle in on his royal commission. First cab um, off the rank, aren't you? <laughs> but it it seems to me so important to understand the foundation stones, and in some ways, I mean, obviously we've made enormous improvements since those days, but some of the some of the basics, the fundamentals to address the human needs of of something meaningful to um, to give you a sense of a contributing life, to um, to be able to have um, um, refuge when you're when you when your coping skills are severely compromised, um, and in those days the the asylums were built. Um, the original asylum at Yarra Bend, where this old pillar still stands, um, they were built. Um, because there was so many so-called lunatics wandering the streets, homeless, or clogging up the jails if they caused trouble. And, I mean, in some ways we've come full circle. I mean, amongst our homeless... Amongst the... the, the yeah, amongst the homeless are very many people with mental illness. And and similarly, the prison populations, there's, there's huge numbers of people with mental illness. So 170 years t- this year since Melbourne built its first asylum, in some ways... 
you know, we, we still haven't cracked the code and so much of it is, is, is associated with, uh, I think, our attitudes. In, you know, it's, we even, again, because we've come so far with stigma, um, we need it, to... It seems like there are some key lessons that we can learn from some mm. of the old asylums. You know, you've, mm. got, you've got sort of sweeping landscape views, you've got nourishing food and you've got meaningful occupation for people, yeah. I think. And strict routine. I mean, that mm. would be, the, that would be the, the formula you'd give to anyone struggling with mental illness these days. And Jill, as someone who's investigated this at, at some depth, there was a question I remember my father was a consultant psychiatrist mm. at one of the big asylums in the UK and I remember him saying when they were all being closed down, he, he said, one day we may live to regret this. Yeah because these are huge, extraordinary pieces of real estate which are going to disappear and we will never be able to get them back. No, that's right. And his real concern was that the absence of somewhere that provided those things that you've described would ultimately become something which we regretted. Do you think we regret closing them? Well, they certainly saw some dark chapters in the 20th century and, of course, you know, there was a reality check as more and more people with chronic mental illness... um, accumulated in these places and then the whole institutional thing of so many massed people becoming so dependent on a system all of that started to happen and and um so i think uh you know nobody's advocating that we go back to huge institutions for for care but i think there's there's definitely a uh, you know, some element of, of thinking that needs to go around. I think um, anyone who works in the, the sort of primary care field, <laughs> Miss Medic's nodding like mm-hmm. crazy mm. here, would recognise that we really struggle to find somewhere safe mm-hmm. that's available that's right. where people who are in crisis and who are really distressed, where we can get them yeah. relatively promptly without too much fuss. And look, there, there is, there's so many innovative treatments and service um, solutions going on but there's it's very under resourced as we all know and um and i think this is the reason why it's it'll be great to have a royal commission because even though some might say it's a talk fest i mean the last couple that we've had have really brought some good results Mm -hmm. and daniel andrews has has um committed to implementing all of the recommendations, which is it's quite a, but he did that with the um, with the with the royal commission into um, family violence. He he had his heart behind that and and really decided that he was going to um, implement all the recommendations. So. Um, we just have to make sure there's some good recommendations. <laughs> Jill, we could we could talk forever about yeah. mental health. We could this history is absolutely fascinating, but time is yes. catching up with us. Unfortunately, just tell us what's the next book. Have we got anything else oh, planned? After no, this I one? haven't actually. But, um, no, not yet. But uh, <laughs> it's an awful question, isn't it? You just got over this earlier thing. Oh, thank heavens, that's over. And well, said, what's next? You think it wasn't? Thank heavens, actually. I, I I loved it. I I got completely captivated by the story. Triple R. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about loneliness, Miss Medic. Mm. Yeah, so when I was doing a little bit of reading this week, I came across an article that caught my eye um, with regards to a new initiative in the NHS, which is the government funding for health in the UK. Um, 
in that GPs have been given the ability to prescribe social activities to lonely people. So under this scheme, they're able to identify people that may be suffering from loneliness, which has a number of both mental health consequences and physical health consequences. And Acknowledging the importance of social connectedness for these people, able to prescribe an activity that might um, enhance their social connectedness. And this article is sort of asking the question, like, you know, is this is this a good thing? Is this a bit paternalistic? Are we oversimplifying someone's suffering by saying, I know what you need, you need to join a tap dancing class you need to buy Uh, a puppy (laughs) Uh, but I think overall the conclusions from the article and certainly um, my conclusions would be that this is probably a good thing so and it made me kind of reflect a little bit on the informal way that I do this in my own practice as a general practitioner Um, you know I can think about a a patient that I had not that long ago who was a a woman in her um, 70s who'd relocated to Melbourne to be closer to her children and their grandchildren Um, so she'd relocated from interstate and you know we'd sort of you know met a number of times sorted out any of the medical issues and you know got everything up to date but she was still sort of struggling with her transition and during one appointment I had with her I said what are you what are you really missing about where you were living and um you know, how can we kind of help get a bit of that back? And she said, well, I really miss my line dancing class. So we spent the rest of that appointment Googling local line dancing groups and got her connected with that line dancing group. And, you know, certainly that was it made a big change to her settling in and feeling more connected within her community. And um, it's sort of, I guess I do that in a, in a way that... Um, You know, this has not been formally handed down to me to do such things, but it made me think, um, you know, this certainly the NHS is a position that they're taking in taking a real active role in encouraging GPs and giving them tools to do this and funding is certainly, um, I think, a positive move. Do we know anything about loneliness? I mean, most most of the time when we look at these things, depression, for instance, has been researched and been shown to be as big a risk factor Mm. for cardiovascular Mm. disease as cholesterol and diabetes. But loneliness is a kind of slightly vague concept. Do we actually know that it matters in a health sense? Yeah, we actually do. And I think Australia is probably lacking with some research here, but it has underway. Um, But the UK has got some pretty good research to sort of show that, yeah, loneliness... um, which can be measured on two fronts, sort of individual and social loneliness. So someone who's individually kind of experiencing loneliness might be someone who's had a loss of a partner or lacking of that, you know, next important person in their life. Um, But there's also social loneliness where you might be in a relationship but feel very disconnected from your outside community. And Either way, both of those situations can be quite damaging. So we know that it is um, it is got significant links with depression, poor cardiovascular health, um, an increased rate of dogni- uh, cognitive decline and dementia. In fact, um, and the two groups that it seemed to be most prone to loneliness, although it can happen at any age, are the 15 to 25-year-olds and the over-75-year-olds. So, I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, it's 
it's clearly an issue and we and the uk is sort of coming down quite firmly with this and they've even appointed the world's first minister for loneliness wow uh, jill geezer you're our guest you yes. wrote this wonderful book maddest place on earth mm. but you're also a psychologist yes. yourself do you have a view absolutely on the the social connectedness is such an important um part of recovery-based uh care for people with who are struggling with mental ill health and and so yeah loneliness is is one of the biggest factors really and being able to connect people back into communities and have a sense of of connections with fellow human beings it's it's just vital i'm a very long way away from that age group that you mentioned miss medic but misdiagnosis you're a bit closer to the that young does it surprise you that young people are one of the groups that express the most loneliness um, unfortunately not. I, I wonder if this has a correlation with social media use as well, that this mm. idea that we are so connected and therefore can't be lonely because, hey, I've got you know thousands of friends on Facebook, means that therefore you shouldn't feel lonely because you're supposed to be, in inverted commas, connected. But I think the reality for a lot of young people, especially in that 15 to 25 age group, is that a lot of those social interactions are fairly sort of saccharine and, and lack sort of real meaning and interpersonality because a lot of it's conducted via likes, via comments, via Snapchats, via WhatsApp messages, and less of it is done in person. And even when you are in person, I think for a lot of people in that age group, there's a focus on getting the picture for the social media so that you can then garner the likes that are that sort of quick dopamine hit without that sort of sense of, of really sitting down and making eye contact and talking to someone. So a lot of smiles for the camera, but tears behind the scenes. I, I unfortunately I think so yes and I think the sorry the other thing that is important with this social connect connectedness is a feeling of being useful as well so that kind of purposeful activity the things that would have been prescribed in the <laughs> asylum to give someone a sense of purpose um, that's also so important so and I guess one of the things that I would say you need to be, if you are a GP giving recommendations, is connecting it with a sense of purpose and usefulness is also incredible, like a lot, it adds another dimension to it as well and possibly more benefit as well. And while I absolutely applaud you for doing this, let me take the devil's advocate position that many people would say, well, it's really not the role of a doctor to be going online and Googling line dancing classes for my yeah. patients. <laughs> yep. so, so who should be helping with this? I mean, if this isn't a role for doctors, where should we be getting help for loneliness? Well, I actually do. Th- yeah, I think it is a role for doctors being that our um, our best, if it's an intervention such as, so helping someone with their loneliness is as effective as making them stop smoking for their cardiovascular health, then why shouldn't I be spending my time doing that? It's actually probably easier than getting someone to quit smoking, actually. Um, so, no, that's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, I think it's all of our responsibilities, actually. And I think that it's something that we... Um, uh, I think we, we we all should be talking about. And there's been some really interesting campaigns. Did anyone see uh, there was, I think it was out of Canada, where lots of good things seem to be happening. Um, it was a little campaign showing that sort of shared meal within a, it was a little like clip that I saw on Facebook showing, um, you know, all these individual f- 
people living in an apartment building sitting down to these solitary meals and this one person starts to knock on the door and get everybody out into the hallway of this apartment building sharing a meal and just how important that sort of act of sharing a meal amongst people rather than everyone sitting in their own little box by their themselves so i think you know it's it's kind of a it needs to be a more of a global sense so there needs to be sort of government attention we need to be thinking about it for the people that would live around us in our communities and yeah i think as doctors we are absolutely in that privileged position to sit there and think well what what can I do to help someone for their overall well-being? And that sharing a meal concept so interesting because Sacred Heart Mission in St Kilda, next door to where I work, serves food for several hundred people every lunchtime. Misdiagnosis. Mm. Uh, sorry to harp on about the social media aspect of it, but I, I do think we're sort of globally much more connected. But even walking down the street, you know, it used to be when I was walking around where I'd live, I would wave to people and I'd say good morning and I'd say hello and now I'm listening to a podcast. And you go to the checkout at Coles and you don't speak to the checkout person because you're at a self-checkout. And you go and you order your coffee and you just pay past your card and sometimes you can order online and you don't even, you know, we've reduced the amount that we have to interact with other people just by the amount that we can do things through the ease of technology. And I think that can be really quite destructive. And how many of us have sat in uh, cafes and watched people having a meal together, and they're both—they're all glued to their to their devices and not talking to each other. Yes. Yeah, or public yeah. transport. I mean, do you ever sit on a tram or a train, and everybody's on a device? Yes. Yeah. So the more connected we are on the internet, mm. the less connected, connected we, are we are personally. Mm. Yes. Well, you will never be lonely if you're listening to Three Triple R here on One Hundred Two Point Seven. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Um, In the light of the um, outcome of the election, our safe injecting room is safe, um, which for me personally I'm completely delighted about as a Richmond resident. um, I thought this was a a fantastic initiative and I'm glad to say that it's still going to be there. But we thought we should talk a little bit more about safe injecting rooms in general and perhaps the Richmond one in particular. Uh, So misdiagnosis, what have you got for us? Well, I thought I'd just have a bit of a chat about what they actually are, why they're there, what the evidence behind them is, and also, you know, sort of have a chat about some of those questions that people might have about why, why, um, for instance, Matthew Guy was was determined to close them down. So they're technically called medically supervised injecting rooms, not just safe injecting. We'll just call them safe injecting rooms for today. But the idea behind it is, it's not just a room that you go in and and inject yourself with something and walk out. It's a medically supervised centre where clients can come in and it actually has a a multi-step process. There's assessment with a, a medically qualified person. There's an injecting space and a treatment room and there's a recovery room as well. And the idea behind it essentially is to sort of combat a few things. It's to try and reduce uh, deaths from overdose, but it's also meant to be a gateway to link clients with other mental health services and other physical health services. So, for instance, these people coming in to use these injecting rooms, if they were injecting, say, in their own house or, you know, in a park or on the street, they wouldn't be in contact with with medical people. But this way they can come in, they can be assessed and people can actually start some of that process of talking to them about any kind of behavioural change that they might be interested in. And it's it's connection with, with services that otherwise they just wouldn't have at all. So that's it's also kind of opportunistic prevention. And then the final part of it is also to try and reduce the, the, the amount of needles and syringes that uh, may be discarded in public spaces. 
So there must be a reason why the leader of the opposition turned around and said, I will close this place down. I don't want it next to my kid's school. Um, it, is it that Law and order. But is, it, <laughs> but is that what it is? is it, do safe injecting rooms um, mean that junkies are flocking to an area and there's more crime and there's more danger? Is it, what is the concern that people have about these places? And are they justified, those concerns? So, so Matthew Guy's statement was that uh, what these safe injecting rooms do is, is sanction use because it, it's government putting money towards what essentially he saw as sanctioned use of um, illicit drugs or use of drugs of addiction rather than steering people towards rehabilitation. I mean, that's just categorically incorrect. Uh, it doesn't sanction the use. What it does is give people a safe, a clean and a professional place where they can come in and, and safely use these drugs. Um, but then they also have that medical follow-up. If something goes wrong, there are people there who are trained in resuscitation, trained in, in management and can actually provide service and care. And then this idea that it, it's sort of encouraging um, more drug use is compared to the evidence that comes out of actually from Sydney who've had safe injecting rooms since 2001. Uh, so they have a lot, you know, they've got a lot of evidence behind what they're doing there. And all throughout Europe, the first safe injecting room was opened in 1986. So this is not this is not an experimental protocol that we are trialling for the first time in Richmond. This has a lot of evidence behind it. And I suppose it's that difference whether you consider injecting drug use as a criminal procedure that requires a law and order response or whether you see it as a health concern that requires a medical and compassionate intervention. And if you see it one way or the other, there's no middle ground, is there? Mm. But what's the evidence from um, the safe injecting rooms that you've come across? I mean, do, do they cause havoc? Are they causing harms? What, what, what happens? So, so interestingly, with the safe injecting rooms in the areas around them, they have never found any evidence that they increase crime. They have found a lot of evidence that they reduce death due to overdose while the centres are open themselves. You get fewer paramedic call-out for overdoses. Uh, they also, within these injecting rooms themselves, it's approximately 10% of clients that come in require some kind of intervention after using these after using these drugs. So whether that's resuscitation or whether that's other medical intervention. And these are people that otherwise would be maybe overdosing on the street. Uh, so that certainly is reduced by these centres themselves. And then the other thing that they've found is because you have this medical intervention there on hand with people who are trained, Within, you know, from Sydney, that research over 16 years in Sydney, um, the research that they published in 2016, um, they haven't had a single death in any of their injecting facilities and they have administered over one million injections within those safe injecting rooms. One million injections. Mm. So doesn't that... Doesn't that bolster Matthew Guy's argument that we're encouraging drug use? I mean, a million injections sounds like we're just creating a storm of intravenous drug use. It, it, it does sound like that, yes. But this is one million supervised, clean, safe injections. It reduces the risk of bloodborne virus transmission and other bloodborne illnesses. And we're not having people die from this on the street. It's not obvious to me, it, it, if I'm a drug addict, I'm scoring this stuff around the back street somewhere, I'm used to having a fix in an alleyway somewhere, I'm a bit suspicious about authority, I'm not that keen on going anywhere near a doctor. Why would I go to a facility where I suspect there's someone in a uniform and there are all sorts of people from the establishment, which is exactly what I'm rejecting? And that's a really, really good question. You know, Why is it that people would even want to come and use these centres, these centres apart from sort of the health benefits of it, which you know potentially they're not 
significantly aware of or, or really care that much about. And really interestingly from the reading that I did around this topic, one of the biggest things that came out is that um, the clients that have come to these centres said that the thing they really liked about it is it's one of the first times people have been nice to them, that they come in and people are really pleasant to them, they're non-judgmental and they help them kind of get on with it and actually in a way there's almost a sense of community around it. And I think that, it, you know, we could, if you subscribe to the notion that drug addicts are all bad, horrible people, that their life isn't worth much, then you can think, why would they? But actually, they probably don't want to die. And actually, they don't want anyone, anyone else to be harmed by needles discarded. So, you know, I think that you have to sort of reframe the way we're thinking about um, people that may be drug addicted, that they're just people that are deserving of compassion, and they um, are deserving of a safe way in order to manage this addiction until a time when they may no longer be addicted like this this is about safety it's about compassion it's about recognizing the humanity of these people and not making any judgments about whether or not they uh you know they care about their life or care about the lives of others i've known many many intravenous drug users over the course of my professional career and and i've seen some appalling behavior from people who use drugs but in my experience the person underneath that hauling behaviour, once you get rid of the drug use, they've been great people. Um, so this idea that somehow there's a class of junkies who are undesirable in society, to me is completely wrong. There's a lot of undesirable behaviour that goes with drug use, but that's not the person who's actually, using. Yeah, and having safe injecting rooms can actually help minimise some of that undesirable behaviour. And do we know a misdiagnosis? Do we know the experience in the community? Because I know in Richmond, while a lot of people supported the concept, there were plenty of people who were against it. Do do we have any idea whether now that the thing has begun, whether the naysayers have anything to say? Is, has there been much opposition as far as we know? From what I've read, it's a bit early within the trial to actually get that information out there. I mean, the other thing is, you know, there, there is a lot of bias in some of the stuff that's written that if there is, you know, if there are people that are saying, hey, this has been really shit and this happened to me and my stool was broken into or something like that, it's not in the literature that's published about the good things about <laughs> safe injecting. Um, so as far as I've read, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think it's a, a wait and see what happens at the moment. But it's interesting, isn't it, that there hasn't exactly been an outpouring of complaints um, from people in the area because of negativity around this experience. And certainly there are CCT, uh, uh, CCTV cameras, um, there's a lot of security, they're working with the Victorian police. They are doing as much as they possibly can to keep the public safe as well. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.